the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Let's see. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. Today we're going to talk with Ken Harrison. He's the author of Rise of the Servant Kings, what the Bible says about being a man. And in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with David Ditch. He is a research associate at the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation with a response to the $2 trillion in proposed spending on infrastructure that was announced by Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer as they emerged from a meeting with the president. I was more struck by the fact that they agreed on something than what they actually agreed upon. But we'll take a look at uh, that when he joins us in the five o'clock hour. So we're looking forward to that. Also, a reminder, tomorrow is the first Thursday in May, which means it's the National Day of Prayer. And later in the program, we'll share with you some opportunities to gather with others in your community. Uh, for prayer. There are churches that are open and events that are taking place and so on. So if you're interested, we will touch on that. Taking a look at some of the headlines, opposition leader Juan Guaido has uh, called for a new round of mass protests today after a day of violent uprising in Venezuela. It was pretty uneventful early on. Later in the afternoon, early evening, uh, things got violent again. There were gunshots heard and so on. Uh, Disputed President Nicolas Maduro was the object of their protest. Well, after being absent for most of the day, Maduro took to the airwaves to proclaim that Guaido's rebellion had been defeated. However, that did not stop Guaido, who is recognized by the United States and more than 50 other nations as Venezuela's rightful president, from calling for more protests. Well, opposition forces... Hope that fed-up Venezuelans will be so angered by broadcast images of armored vehicles plowing into pedestrians that they'll continue to riot in the streets. Didn't uh, really translate that way. I'm not sure how many people actually saw it, so that may be at least a partial explanation. And in a blow to Maduro, Manuel Ricardo Christopher Figuera, the head of Venezuela's feared secret police, turned his back on the disputed leader in an open letter made public Tuesday night. I mentioned yesterday that it was made public by the Secretary of State that Maduro was prepared to leave the country and go to Cuba. He was talked out of it by uh, Russian leadership. And so he stayed there. And essentially, most are saying if Cuba and Russia were to leave, Maduro would collapse within the hour. So he is being propped up. And many are concerned that um, they were going to see something similar to Syria happening in our hemisphere. I read a headline today, which I could not confirm, so will not report as fact, uh, that Russia was moving nuclear weapons into Venezuela and it was going to be another Bay of Pigs. So a lot of speculation about what's happening there and concern about uh, its future. And we'll certainly continue to follow that story. Meanwhile, um, the attorney general, uh, I keep saying Bob Barr, Bill Barr. Anyway, he was faced a grilling in the Senate. His new reports from uh, Robert Mueller raised some eyebrows. Now, this is how it went down, according to Barr. And Mueller has yet to dispute it, although he could. Before the um, summary of the Mueller report was released, Bob Barr, Bill Barr, 
You know, I was listening to um, commentators all day today who kept making that mistake. I've never made it before. Now I'm picking up theirs. But anyway, Mr. William Barr called Mueller and said, would you like to help me write this? Mueller declined. Um, William Barr issued the report. It was released. And then Mueller didn't like um, how this is what he said, how the media was portraying it when um, asked if uh, by Barr uh, if he had misrepresented anything in the report, Mueller said no. And he apparently has a transcript of that conversation. And the head of the committee that heard the testimony earlier today said that he would be in touch with Mueller if he disputes anything that William Barr said about that conversation. They would invite Mueller to um, speak before the um, the Senate committee. And he said it anyway. Senate Democrats uh, grilled the attorney general. We'll talk more about it in detail coming up. Uh, but that was a rather interesting uh, series of exchanges Uh, between the attorney general and Democrats on the committee. In other news, the U.S. Border Patrol on Tuesday morning apprehended its largest group of illegal immigrants caught at once, Customs and Border Protection reported. CBP, that's Customs and Border Protection, oversees the Border Patrol. They said 424 illegal aliens were apprehended just after midnight in Sunland Park, New Mexico, An additional 230 uh, illegal aliens were apprehended in Antelope Wells, New Mexico, at about 2 a.m. It's an ongoing situation that the U.S. Border Patrol agents um, are facing in southern Mexico. Hundreds of parents and children being encountered by agents after having faced a dangerous journey in the hands of unscrupulous smugglers. The statement said border officials said they were struggling to cope with the influx of Central American families with Border Patrol apprehending a record setting 53 thousand families and these aren't individuals 53,000 families in March it's not sustainable whatever your view is on what should happen once they arrive this cannot continue at this level uh, something has to be done well South Bend Indiana mayor and 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg is uh, drawing some backlash for a stance on mandatory vaccinations. BuzzFeed reported that Buttigieg uh, supports states rights to mandate vaccinations but also supports some exceptions which is sort of a contradiction because that's how it stands today. Well, the law of the land uh, for more than a century has been that states can enforce mandatory vaccination for public safety to prevent the spread of dangerous disease. Uh, Buttigieg does support some exceptions, except during a public health emergency to prevent an outbreak, a spokesperson for his campaign told BuzzFeed. The 37-year-old progressive listed personal religious exemptions, but reiterated that there must be no public health crisis for the exemptions to be honored. And Fox Entertainment's uh, hit show Empire was officially picked up for a sixth season, but without one of its controversial mainstays, Jesse Smollett. By mutual agreement, the studio has negotiated an extension of his option for season six, but at this time, there are no plans for the character of Jamal to return to the program. Fox Entertainment and 20th Century Fox TV said in a statement to Fox News on Tuesday, Smollett's spokesperson said the actor was... Grateful to Fox for keeping the future of his character, Jamal, open and was grateful to the cast, crew and leadership of Empire for their unwavering support. Smollett faces a lawsuit from the city of Chicago after prosecutors dropped 16 felony disorderly conduct charges against him for his alleged role in a hate crime hoax scandal. And the FBI has been collecting information on Americans who have been helping the migration caravans heading to the U.S.-Mexico border and is now investigating an alleged plot by anti-fascist activists activists to purchase weapons from a Mexican drug cartel. The Daily Wire is reporting the revelation coincided with CNN's Chris Cuomo uh, chastising Antifa 
um, or rather christening Antifa, a good cause earlier this week. So not quite so fast. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break uh, when we um, return later this hour at the bottom of the hour. We'll talk with Ken Harrison. He's the author of Rise of the Servant Kings, what the Bible says about being a man. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Hey, let me ask you, have you listened in to TBN's first daily original program, Better Together? It's heard weekdays here in the Portland metro area, 1030 a.m. on TBN. But there are a couple of other ways you can watch. Um, download the TBN app or you can go visit bettertogether.tv, register to watch Anytime. And today's program was about um, how to break the unhealthy cycle of comparison and insecurity that so often plagues us, uh, referring to women. Tomorrow's program is going to be focused on being uniquely you, reflecting on what makes you well, unique. They're going to talk about uh, the identity that impacts your purpose and, and so on on Better Together. As I mentioned, this is uh, TBN's first daily original program for women by women. And they talk about stuff that you're not going to hear on The, the View. Each of the panel women and their topics of discussion will change. Um, for this week, we're hearing from Christine Kane, Holly Wagner, Dee Dee Freeman and Hosanna Wong. And of course, Lori Crouch is the moderator. But it's a great uh, opportunity to engage in conversation and to to reflect on the things that we all share in common as women. That's Better Together, again, weekdays, Monday through Friday, 1030 a.m. on TBN. Or you can download the TBN app or visit their website, uh, bettertogether.tv, TV, and register to watch any time. Better Together. Let's, uh, let's support this great work. Well, taking a look back at the news, some um, RAND researchers have found that drug trafficking-centric transnational cartels control primary uh, struggling corridors into the United States and estimate that the total revenues uh, to all types of smugglers, not just transnational cartels for smuggling migrants from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador combined, ranged from about $200 million to about $2.3 billion in 2017. Now, that's in 2017 dollars. In other words, cartels and trafficking rings earned as much as $2.3 billion from human smuggling just in the year 2017. Anti-Semitic assaults more than doubled, and the U.S. Jewish community experienced near-historic levels of anti-Semitism in 2018, according to a report it was released yesterday by the Anti-Defamation League. Last year was the third highest year on record for attacks against Jews and Jewish institutions since the League, an international Jewish non-governmental organization, began tracking this data in the 70s. The ADL uh, annual audit of anti-Semitic incidents recorded 1,879 attacks against Jews and Jewish institutions across the U.S. in 2018, and that represented a 5% decline from the 1,986 incidents recorded in 2017. Nevertheless, the number of anti-Semitic incidents in 2018 still remained 48% higher than in 2016 and 99% higher than in 2015. The National Security Agency, the NSA, disclosed the identities of nearly 17,000 U.S. residents and businesses to American intelligence officials last year through a legal but controversial practice known as unmasking, according to a report that was also released yesterday. The number of unmaskings, 16,729 to be exact, marks a 75 percent increase from 2017, which saw the NSA make 9,500 disclosures to intelligence agencies. 
The unmasking process has become controversial over the past two years. Republicans have said that Obama administration officials abused foreign surveillance laws by making unnecessary unmasking requests of Trump associates during the 2016 presidential campaign, as well as during the presidential transition period. And a letter carrier from Auburn, Maine, last week, won a legal victory when the U.S. Postal Service was forced to reinstate him in a job after he was absent for 14 years while deployed in the global war on terrorism. The Postal Service informed him in January of 2016 that it would not reinstate him because he had abandoned his civilian post. Wow. His attorney saw that as a violation of the 1994 Uniformed Service Employment and Reemployment Rights Act, and they were right. On this day in 2011, President Barack Obama announces the death of Osama bin Laden during a U.S. commando operation. Because of the time difference, it was early May 2nd in Pakistan, where the al-Qaeda leader met his end. And on this day in 1992, on the third day of the Los Angeles riots, a visibly shaken Rodney King appears in public to appeal for calm, pleading, can we all just get along? And on this day in 1931, singer Kate Smith makes her debut on CBS radio on her 24th birthday. Hmm. Ben Shapiro said this, in our new political world, running means having to say you're sorry for having a record at all. Experience, age, it's no longer of great value. That's why it's easier for Barack Obama to run than Hillary Clinton. And in many ways, it's easier for Donald Trump to run than Senator Ted Cruz. Having a record is now a burden. The power of positive thinking trumps years of experience. After all, you don't have to worry about what Mayor Pete Buttigieg has done since he's never done anything. But you do have to worry about Joe Biden's record being rehashed. That's why Biden's best weeks may be his first weeks as his record reemerges. As other Democrats dig into his past for dirt, Biden will have to get used to saying he's sorry and then hope that Democratic voters choose to take him back. And by the way, his numbers are up uh, in his party. He is, according to a Quinnipiac poll, uh, Biden is up by 26 points. CNN has him up by 24 points. Turns out Biden is doing well with the moderates while the remaining cluster fight for the far left educated white vote. Uh, Team Biden is cutting up uh, old clips of Obama to make it appear he's uh, backing Biden. A hot air is reporting. I'm not sure that's entirely accurate. Meanwhile, some believe uh, Abrams opted out of a Senate bid so she could run for president. She hasn't announced, but she did decline the sort of implied invitation by the former vice president. So there you have it. Well, as I mentioned, Attorney General William Barr testified today before the Senate Judiciary Committee and faced questions over the handling of special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia report and accusations from Democrats that he sought to represent the investigation's findings or rather present them in favor of the president. Now, the interesting thing to me was that there was one member who who used her time to ask questions about Russian interference in the election, and that was her primary focus. It was very telling that most of it was about um, Robert Mueller's uh, letter that was uh, an outline of the, the the findings of the Mueller report. Well, Barr was grilled over a Washington Post article that he said Mueller contacted Barr to express concerns about the public summary his office put out in March. Mueller made clear he did not feel Barr's summary was inaccurate, according to the Post and the Justice Department. Rather, Mueller told Barr that media coverage of the letter had misinterpreted the results of the probe concerning obstruction of justice. The hearing provided the attorney general his most extensive opportunity yet to explain the department's actions. On Thursday, he slated to testify before the House Judiciary Committee regarding the report. But we learned late this afternoon that ain't going to happen. 
the dispute was over whether or not staff attorneys would be able to question the attorney general. He had made it clear he was not uh, willing to be uh, interviewed by um, staff attorneys, but would would be willing to sit and be questioned by uh, House Judiciary Committee um, members. There was no budging on either side. Therefore, he will not be testifying tomorrow. Special counsel Robert Mueller wrote a letter, as I mentioned in late March, complaining to the attorney general that the four-page memo to Congress describing the principal conclusions of the investigation didn't fully captivate the or capture the context, the nature, the substance of Mueller's work, according to a copy of the letter reviewed by the Washington Post and referenced in today's hearing, the letter and a subsequent phone call between the two men, which apparently uh, there is a record of, revealed the degree to which the longtime colleagues and friends disagreed as they handled the legally and uh, politically fraught task of investigating the president. Democrats in Congress uh, scrutinized the complaint um, and the chair of the committee indicated that he would contact Mueller. And if he had any dispute with Barr's characterization of their exchange, um, that Mueller would have an opportunity to speak to the committee directly. Again, uh, uh, Bill Barr indicated that uh, he invited Mueller to um, write the summary with him. Mueller declined when the summary was uh, released. Mueller indicated his dissatisfaction with the way the media was characterizing it. Um, and that was the nature of the dispute. But again, we'll find out if, in fact, that's as far as it uh, as it goes, one of the things the attorney general fired back on uh, with Democrats who for weeks have called his integrity into question over his handling of special counsel Robert Mueller's report, suggesting uh, during a testy uh, hearing they were using the issue uh, to uh, score political points ahead of the 2020 election and advising the department's uh, role. Um, that the department's role in the controversy is now over. We have to stop using the criminal justice process as a political weapon, Barr said during the back and forth with Connecticut Democrat Senator Dick Blumenthal. Again, Barr was uh, expected to speak before the House Judiciary Committee. That is now clearly not going to happen. And we'll keep you updated as to any changes that might occur in the days ahead. Up next, we'll talk with Ken Harrison, Rise of the Servant Kings, what the Bible says about being a man. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Ken Harrison. He's the author of Rise of the Servant Kings, what the Bible says about being a man. He's currently the um, uh, director of uh, Promise Keepers. We're going to talk with him about that. Well, he writes that men are hungry for authenticity and for sound and bold biblical teaching on true masculinity. I mean, these days there's a lot of confusion. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Should men aspire to it? Should they be repelled by it? Every day, men ask themselves questions about how to be better fathers, husbands, friends, and men. But it's difficult to find satisfying answers. Well, the good news is that we're... We weren't meant to figure it out on our own, or men weren't, because the Bible provides God's original blueprint for true masculinity, as he does for femininity. Through fast-paced stories, scriptural insights, his book, Rise of the Servant Kings, What the Bible Says About Being a Man, takes readers on a journey to discover uh, that um, more of who God is and who men are and who they're meant to be as his sons. Well, Ken Harrison understands the struggles men face and the victories that are possible. He's a former LAPD cop. He served in the infamous 77th Division of South Central Los Angeles and realizes that true strength comes only through the pursuit of biblical masculine servanthood. Well, Ken Harrison is the president and chairman of Promise Keepers. His mission is to provide executive leadership and strategic direction to the ministry while inspiring men to be bold, to be humble, and ambitious about their faith. 
He also serves as CEO of Waterstone, a Christian community foundation that oversees donations of millions of dollars per month to build God's kingdom. He started his career, as I mentioned, as an LAPD street cop in uh, Watts Compton area. There he received numerous commendations and awards, including nomination for the Police Star of Bravery. He is a Colson Fellow, has served on numerous local and national boards. He's an author and corporate speaker. Um, he has a long record of dedicated service to ministry. He leads Bible studies locally and participated in missions trips to a number of places. He's been married for 28 years, and he and his wife have three children. He joins us today to talk about his book, Rise of the Servant Kings, What the Bible Says About Being a Man. Ken Harrison, thank you so much for joining us. Are you with us? Uh, he's now gone, so I'm not sure what happened, so we'll try that again. We were having some technical difficulties a moment ago, so we'll try uh, try again. Anyway, the book is on is written uh, by a man, obviously, for men. Uh, while we're waiting, I wanted to mention that ballots for the uh, May 21st election are being mailed to all registered voters, and that started today. There are no statewide races to be decided. The election uh, features races for school boards, community college boards, education service district boards, as well as a handful of bond measures. And it's easy to think, eh, I don't know who these people are. I don't know what this is about and not participate. But I'm telling you, members of school boards, whether that's Multnomah County or Washington County or wherever you happen to be, these are important. And on that ballot will be Portland Public Schools, um, Centennial, Corbett, David Douglas, Gresham Barlow, Park Rose, Reynolds, Riverdale and others. So uh, make note of that. The ballots are coming out. And of course, we're all mail in. You should have your voter guide by now. And uh, if at all possible, try to participate in this uh, this election. We're going to try this again. Ken Harrison, are you with us? I am here. Okay. Uh, So glad to have you, and I appreciate your taking the time to talk with us about your book, Rise of the Servant Kings, What the Bible Says About Being a Man. Now, these days, men are disparaged on a regular basis. Masculinity is considered a foul word, and men are made fun of in entertainment media and certainly in uh, uh, in Madison Avenue advertisements. This is the context in which men are trying to be good fathers and husbands and so on. Talk a little bit about the challenge that you're addressing in your book, Rise of the Servant Kings. How sad it is that that's happening. And, you know, male and female together are the representation of God's image. And neither one of us on our own is a representation of God's image. And Satan's been laying the groundwork for this, attacking Christianity and it really attacking our perception of who God is for a long, long time, and we're just seeing it come to fruition by attacking masculinity and making it seem toxic. What he's doing is really attacking the image of God in each one of us. Well, let's talk about masculinity, because as I mentioned a moment ago, the word itself is now um, uttered with disdain. When you use the word masculinity, what are you referring to? Because oftentimes the worst possible scenario is is loaded into that word, and therefore it's, it's summarily rejected. Yeah, imagine how silly it would seem if someone said toxic femininity. I mean, the, the term masculinity is all the positive things that go into making what we perceive as a man. Um, it's just like all the positive aspects of, of being feminine are the things for being a woman. I mean, there are things that are feminine that are very original to a woman. Being able to give birth, the most awesome thing in all of life, is only a woman thing. It is a feminine thing. But to say masculine, those things that have to do with being strong, protective, providing for our families, to say that that's toxic is just a silly um, misconception of, of the word. It destroys, it changes the, the English language of what the word is. Now, the title of your book is Rise of the Servant Kings. Explain the title. 
Well, we're meant to be servant kings to our families and to our wives. I mean, it says in in the Bible in many places that we're to love our lives like Christ loved the church. And and how did he love the church? He laid down his life for the church. He was tortured to death for the church. And so as we're exhorted to lead our wives and to love them like Christ loved the church, um, we're to lead them like servant kings, um, someone who understands that the entire goal of this family is to serve God and that I'm to lay down my rights to myself, as I just as I do for the Lord, for the good of my family and for the good of my wife. Now, I gave your introduction a moment ago. You've had a pretty diverse career that you bring to your role as uh, as director of uh, Promise Keepers. Talk a little bit about your background. <laughs> well, actually, and you know, what what it doesn't say there is I was raised in Portland. Oh, you um, were? I was talking to my hometown. I yeah. went to Barlow High School. Yeah. <laughs> so... My father was a Los Angeles policeman, and he was shot in the L.A. riots, excuse me, in the Watts riots in 1965, and then he retired us up to Portland um, in 1972. So I was actually raised in Portland, and then when I was 21, went back and followed in his footsteps, and so um, went down to the same division, the 77th Division, which you um, mentioned, which is when people think of, you know, all the gangster rap and the boys in the hood and all that stuff, that's that's 77th Division. Mm-hmm. And so got quite the education there, especially being an Oregon kid, and uh, was involved in a lot of violence and whatnot, and then uh, left there and got involved in business, and, and God really gave me um, wisdom to be successful in business. And the education I got in business was really quite eye-opening, too. As I got into running an international company, I found out that criminals and greed and all that stuff doesn't just live in South Central Los Angeles. It comes with men with suits and ties on, too. Yeah. Amazing that we're all fallen creatures and we need redemption of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Now you say that we are in a fight. If you don't feel like you're in a fight, then you aren't paying attention. What is that fight and how can or how do men win? You know, the godless are after our families. They're after our kids. Uh, you can't believe the amount of emails and phone calls I get every day from promise keepers. Um, they need hundreds of emails a week we get, more than I can possibly even read. Uh, for people who are heartbroken over all the things going on in their family. Um, I talked to a guy not too long ago who's divorced. His wife, who, with, with whom he's estranged, has uh, their uh, nine-year-old son, and she's given him um, different chemicals to keep him from hitting puberty because she claims he's a girl. I mean, that's a direct attack. There's nothing he can do uh, about it, uh, direct attack on our family. So they're trying to change truth. They're trying to change what the Bible says. Um, and we've gotten to a point of madness. And one of the things that Promise Keepers is really taking on very uh, boldly is abortion. A million abortions a year in this country, premeditated murder of our unborn babies. And what we're trying to take it on is not from a legal standpoint, but rather from a responsibility standpoint. Mm-hmm. Because there are no abortions that happen that a man didn't have something to do with. And so what we've said is uh, Promise Keepers don't cause abortions because they limit intimate relations with their wives. Um, but if they sin and and we we fall and we do something that causes an do something we cause an abort uh, unwanted pregnancy, we take care of that woman. We take care of her needs. We, we commit to raising that child both emotionally, with our time, with our money, um, and then thirdly, uh, we never judge a woman who's having an abortion. We seek to help her mm-hmm. because um, there's so many women who are in need and need help, and somebody somebody somewhere caused an unwanted pregnancy. And so, what can promise keeping men do? 
to rise up and take care of women who need our help. Yeah. We're talking with Ken Harrison. He's the author of Rise of the Servant Kings, What the Bible Says About Being a Man. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation in just a moment. By the way, the foreword to the book is written by Stu Weber. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Ken Harrison, author of Rise of the Servant Kings. In the book, you um, have a chapter on masculinity, and you tell the story of your LAPD partner, Juan, who ultimately murdered one of his mistresses and took his own life. What does that story tell us about the, the battle of, uh, for true masculinity as opposed to the perverted version of it that repels so many? Oh, that's a great question. You know, we went from a long-standing bad version of masculinity. It came from sort of the James Bond, um, how many women can you sleep with and how violent can you be and how stoic and push down your emotions. And we flipped all the way to the other side of calling it all toxic and um, trying to get men to be as feminine as possible. And, and really, men are capable of being feminine because those are those are things for women. They end up becoming effeminate, which is not a good thing. And so Juan was, uh, was that kind of person who was cheating on his wife, had multiple girlfriends. He was very, very charming, um, total LAPD cop in every way. And uh, he just kept trying to talk to me, as I talk about in the book, about the Lord. But it was so shallow because it was a constant thing constantly wanting to talk about Jesus, but not taking any of my advice. And I finally just had enough and wasn't available for him at one point. And he uh, he took his girlfriend down to Mexico and murdered her, killed himself, and, and left a two-year-old orphan in the wake, somebody that had been killed by a macho L.A. cop. And I just think about that kid now. Oh, uh, mm. As a young adult, he must be so scarred. You write about the four stages in the destruction of masculinity. What are they, and how can that be, or can it be, reversed? Well, you know, it's funny. The, the first descent of masculinity really is machismo. It is a, is a lack of empathy for those around us. Um, I write a lot in the chapter on marriage about how true leaders are empathetic to those around them. As Terry Truman said, we put ourselves in the shoes of the other person and walk around in them for a while. And I find that um, that machismo doesn't think about the other people, how we are perceived by them, and really go into um, how we're perceived by our wives one of the things that men don't really think about is that our bodies don't ever change uh, other than puberty, which is all a good thing for us. We get bigger, stronger, and faster when we're 12 or 13 years old. A man's body doesn't change for his whole life, but a woman's body is changing all the time. Um, puberty can be a very traumatic experience for girls, and then you've got a monthly change. You've got pregnancy and then menopause where a woman often gives up her very identity of being able to have children. And so men need to really think about how a woman perceives uh, intimate relationship differently than they do when their bodies are changing. And also, just when you think about a sexual encounter for a woman is always in our natural state potential for a life-changing event, which is pregnancy, whereas for a man, in the natural state, has no effect. And so, therefore, women are going to perceive sex much differently than men do and how we approach it. And that's one of the sillinesses of, of this sort of gender fluidity that we have, how silly if you've got body parts that can get pregnant, cause life, the great joy that that brings, but also the great responsibility that brings compared to a male who has none of those things, those, are, those bring very different ways of thinking from the time we're born. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, you, um, you say that the hallmark of being a man is accountability, and you've touched on that um, a, a little bit, that there's a connection between being a real man and uh, having accountability and accountable relationships um, as being crucial. 
Explain why and what that kind of accountability looks like. Well, we understand that we're accountable for what goes on in our lives and our families. If God has given us the leadership in our family, then the state of our family is something that we're accountable for. And what I talk about in the book is it's important for us to remember that doesn't mean that we're at fault. Um, I talk about a good friend of mine in the book who's done everything right. He's a very, very godly man, and he really has been a servant king in his family. And yet his wife just rejected Christ and therefore rejected him, and she walked out on him and their two daughters. Um, It's not his fault that she rejected Christ and rejected him. He did everything he could, but it is his responsibility to do all he can to make that marriage as as, uh, happy as it can be. And so responsibility and accountability lie on, since God gave us leadership in our homes, they lie on us as men to say, if things aren't right in this family, what am I going to do to change it? How, how might I be at fault? What can I do to change myself? And then what can I do for the sake of this family? And it's important that men remember and take that role of my family is my responsibility. You know, think about the jailer at Acts who says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That that needs to be a man's responsibility his his motto in life for his family. Mm. Now, what's the difference between leadership and authority in marriage? And is that an important distinction? Very. Yeah, you know, I talk about that in the book. Yes. That, um, authority is something that a police officer has. When a police officer pulls you over, you don't have a choice about whether you're going to obey him or not. Um, leadership is something vastly different. Leadership says this is who we are and where we're going, and the people can... In, in, within that scope can choose to fo- decide to follow or not follow. And so a man needs to remember that the wife is, is told by the Lord to submit, but it's her choice whether she's going to do that or not. It's not for a man to decide whether he thinks his wife is properly following the Bible. He needs to be the type of man that she wants to follow. Again, back to the accountability. So a man is not in authority over his wife. He is commanded to lead his wife. Very, very different. Now, in, in practical terms, explain that difference, because in leading, is it leading by example? If a, if a wife is unwilling to follow, what, what does that mean in terms of leadership? Well, you know, if you give an analogy, if, uh, if we want to go out to dinner and uh, I say, hey, let's go to dinner, I'd like to have Chinese food, and my wife says, well, I'd like to have Italian food, a leader says, well, then let's go have Italian food. Somebody in authority says, we're going out to dinner and we're going to Chinese food. And that has been the real wrong thing that has been in marriage that has really hurt Christianity. And it's given rise to this toxic uh, masculinity idea because men have acted as, as if they were authority over their wives instead of leading their wives. A leader lays down his life for the sake of whatever it is he's leading and for the people who are following him. And so a husband says, because I'm in leadership, we're going to do what's best for this family, and we're going to do. We're going to. I'm going to lay down my rights to myself for my wife. Yeah, my preference. Yeah, you write about a time when God broke you, and when uh, He brought you completely uh, to the end of yourself, and uh, and you write about the experience of brokenness and how essential it is for men. Oh, yeah. You know, I say in the book that that um, humility is the mark of a person who's in love with Jesus Christ. And so many men need to have that pride just ripped out of them. There's something about, remember my uncle, who was a captain on the LAPD, used to say that women always made the best homicide detectives. And he said for two reasons. First, they asked better questions than men did. And secondly, they never let their male pride get in the way of finding out who who done it. Hmm. And um, it's true here. Men so often have to be broken of that male pride. And so often that male pride comes from a lack of proper fathering. 
I find that so many men, so many pastors have never really been affirmed as men by their fathers. There is this giant wound in them. And I find that as we at Promise Keepers and I meet these guys, if I just meet with them and affirm them, you are a man, um, and explain to them what a man is, it has a remarkable effect on the soul of a man. But one of those covers, one of those wound covers is pride. It's this, this gross male pride that so often comes out as male chauvinism and whatnot. Again, not realizing that true masculinity is humility, courage, generosity. Those are the things that mark a man. Well, there's so much more in your book that we could talk about and you write about in greater detail. Again, the title of the book is Rise of the Servant Kings, What the Bible Says About Being a Man. Ken Harrison is the chairman of the board for Promise Keepers, and the book is published by Multnomah. Thank you so much for taking the time to share with us today. Well, thank you for the chance. I really appreciate appreciate it. it. All right, we've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. Also in the second hour of the program, we'll talk with David Ditch. He's a research associate. We'll talk about the $2 trillion proposed um, budget for infrastructure. Is that much necessary? How is it, uh, where is it going to come from? How might it be dispersed and are there other options? That's coming up later in the 5 o'clock hour. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part by Zero Res. Well, a massive class action lawsuit filed in Illinois on Wednesday would force unions to refund hundreds of millions of dollars in agency fees that were paid by thousands of workers all across the nation prior to the Supreme Court's landmark ruling last year in Janus versus AFSCME. It's kind of hard to say. Well, that June 2018 decision barred public sector unions from requiring non-members to pay the fees without obtaining their clear consent. It already has cost unions tens of millions of dollars in dues, according to experts. And though the, the ruling hasn't yet been applied retroactively to provide refunds to workers, that's what they're seeking. The new Leitich et al. versus uh, AFSCME litigation again unites the nonprofit law firms Liberty Justice Center and National Right to Work uh, and Legal Defense Foundation, they worked together on the uh, worked rather together on the Janus case against Ask Me, uh, the largest public sector union in the country. Well, the two legal groups are representing nine government worker plaintiffs and a class of more than twenty seven hundred workers in the lawsuit that aims to set a precedent that could apply to all public sector unions. We're putting the band back together. That's a quote from Patrick Hughes from Liberty Justice Center. The argument is once something is deemed to be unconstitutional in the civil context, agency fees, then um, they're deemed to um, be retroactively unconstitutional. We're taking the position that those fees should be refunded to those non-members. Well, prior to the Supreme Court decision called Janus, shorthand, uh, Hughes argued that workers were faced with a false choice. They could pay full membership dues and become a union member or pay a substantial amount of those dues and not become a member. In either case, you're paying dues. Well, the Supreme Court validated his reasoning last June, holding not only that public unions violated the First Amendment by taking money out of the unwilling workers' paychecks to fund collective bargaining, but also that employees have to clearly and affirmatively consent before any fees or dues can be Collected. They don't have to object um, after the fact. Well, uh, the attorney Hughes emphasized that workers should be able to join unions if they want. But that decision, he said, should be made free from the external pressures created by the mandatory fee systems. 
Well, Ask Me and other unions, uh, Hughes acknowledged, can be expected to fight the lawsuit tooth and nail, as he put it, given the amount of money that's at stake. He predicted that unions would offer a, a good faith defense and assert that they are entitled to retain the dues from before the Janus decision because they believe their position to be legally sound. Well, the problem is the Supreme Court has never found the good faith doctrine applies in this context. And the more fact-specific problem is that the public sector unions were well aware that the pending legal challenges to mandatory agency fees had merit. Well, the complaint uh, noted that in, uh, or rather on February 9th in 2015, then-Illinois Governor Bruce Rauner, a Republican, issued an executive order that recognized the state's agency fee requirement were likely unconstitutional, and that called for the fees to be placed in escrow so that each such state employee will receive the amount deducted from his or her wages upon the determination by any court of the competent jurisdiction that the fair share contract provision are unconstitutional. Ask Me did not agree, however. Uh, they didn't agree to have uh, agency fees escrowed while their constitutionality were resolved, and that uh, may present something of a problem for them now. Uh, In addition to class uh, certification, the lawsuit seeks for plaintiffs and the class members actual damages and the full amount of fees and any assessments seized from their wages from the 1st of May 2017 to June 27th of 2018, plus interest for violations to their First Amendment rights. This could be devastating for Ask Me and could be the first domino to fall in a series of other union decisions to follow. If it's unconstitutional in this context, It's unconstitutional in every context. And attendees at the National Rifle Association, the NRA's problem, has little to do with the typical criticisms that's hurled at it, rather, by its uh, biggest detractors. Well, the NRA has uh, big troubles of its own. It's wildly in debt. The Attorney General of New York, where the NRA was founded in 1871, and where it remains incorporated, is investigating the tax-exempt status of what she's called a terrorist organization. The NRA's longtime chief executive, Wayne LaPierre, is in a bitter feud with its outgoing president. Oliver North, who is now officially out. Accusations are flying, including of attempted extortion and misuse of perhaps millions of dollars. Well, on the surface, the NRA's problems have little to do with the typical criticisms that it receives by its biggest detractors. To them, the villainous NRA is too rich, too powerful, too well-run, not an outfit drowning in red ink or dysfunction. But it turns out that that's a real problem, in part Uh, stemming from its outsized ambitions. Well, for most of its history, the National Rifle Association was a sporting club. It was dedicated to teaching gun safety, promoting hunting and marksmanship as a pastime. It was founded by two Union Army officers who had um, noticed that the Confederates tended to be better shots. So in the 1930s, it started to dip in its toes rather into lobbying, but in favor of limited gun control. The NRA, for instance, supported the Federal Firearms Act of 1938, which established federal gun licensing requirements. It wasn't until the mid-70s, after passage of the Federal Gun Control Act, that new leaders at the NRA made lobbying for gun rights central to its mission. Of course, the threat also increased at that time. Still, that mission was no bipartisan, working from the common sense assumption that gun rights would be better protected if support uh, came from both parties. The NRA once supported candidates on either side of the aisle. In the 2000 campaign cycle, it spent $372,000 on some 66 Democratic incumbents. But by 2016, it contributed to just four. So what happened? 
Well, the easy answer is that the GOP increasingly embraced gun rights, the Democrats embraced gun control, or the other way around. Which side is guilty of policy extremism depends on your view of gun policy. Asking which side is guilty of rhetorical extremism is pointless because both are. The NRA is not a terrorist organization, but neither are its opponents a horde of anarchists, socialists, and goons, as the NRA's media arm often portrays them. Well, the GOP-NRA alliance came downstream from two larger social shifts. The first is the big sort, a shorthand for how American society has self-organized, not just into red and blue regions, but also worldviews. The end of the NRA's bipartisan lobbying strategy simply reflected the facts on the ground. In eight, rather 1989, 64% of Republicans had a favorable view of the NRA, and so did 49% of Democrats. Today, those numbers are 88% and 24% respectively. Well, the second reason is that the parties are weaker than they have ever been. The common assertion that Republican politicians are pro-gun because they've been brought up um, they've been bought off, rather, by the NRA. Blood money is mostly a paranoid conspiracy theory. The NRA doesn't actually give very much money to any politician, at least compared with, say, organized labor or trial lawyers. What the NRA does do incredibly effectively is organize and inform voters, mobilizing them to vote reliably for philosophically aligned candidates. Historically, that was a function of the political parties, but now it's been largely outsourced to special interest groups such as the NRA, but also Planned Parenthood for the Democrats. These groups are motivated to get out the vote, but they're also incentivized to monetize the voters. The net effect has been for these interest groups to go all in for the culture war, which is highly effective for fundraising and take our election with them. Well, NRA folks today uh, envy uh, against the socialists with the same vehemence they used to reserve for the gun grabbers. UCLA professor Adam Winkler, author of Gunfight, the Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America, observes that NRA TV, the online media outlet of the NRA, has strayed far from the gun lane. Now it's focused on immigration, race, health care. He told the the, uh, New Republic, Dana Loesch, an NRA spokeswoman, has called the mainstream news media the rat. Well, I won't even mention one of the words because it falls outside of my convictions of the earth, she goes on to say, who deserve to be curb stomped. Hmm. We've come a long way since William F. Buckley came out in favor of the Brady Bill. Well, political parties once had the desire and resource to manage their own brands, keeping activists and interests at a more healthy distance. These days are gone, not just with the NRA, but other groups as well, having an outweighed influence. Parties and the institutions they really that really run them are simple, simply uniforms for combatants in the culture war. In such a climate, it's no surprise that things such as good corporate governance become an afterthought. That's the NRA and so many other organizations influencing our politics. Well, inside the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, workers are already ripping up the ancient teal carpet. By summer, the outside columns will be covered with scaffolding, part of an expensive uh, renovation project meant to give the 100-year-old headquarters a new look. But as far as most conservatives are concerned, the chamber's real transformation was already well underway. A radical makeover that's gone beyond what the building looks like to what it stands for. Well, according to the Washington Post, the chamber is um, tired of aligning with Republicans and wants to rebuild as a more inclusive brand. We cannot just single source our politics through one party, says Tom Wilson, who's the chairman of the organization's board. It's time, he insists, to fundamentally 
fundamentally act direct uh, differently. Rather, that mission has certainly been accomplished in the last handful of years as the chamber wades into radical social policies that are increasingly dividing the business community. In its latest charm offensive to Democrats, the chamber seemed to make the uh, break with conservatives official, stunning everyone with its endorsement of the most extreme piece of LGBTQ um, activism ever introduced, and that is the Equality Act. I won't go into the details now, but we've talked about it in detail here before. For an organization whose sole purpose is to protect American enterprise, the move came as a shock to anyone familiar with the oppressive realities of the Equality Act, known as H.R. 5, the bill pushed by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. The whole point of the Chamber of Commerce, Family Research Council's Peter Sprigg points out, is to advocate for pro-business policies that create jobs, grow our economy. Its website even lists regulatory relief as a priority issue. So why, Sprigg asks, would they send a letter to Congress asking, in effect, please regulate us more? Well, instead of giving businesses the freedom to set their own policies on sexual orientation and gender identity, the Chamber of Commerce thinks the government should force them to adopt restroom policies as unsafe as targets. And under this bill, U.S. businesses wouldn't just be punished for having gender-specific restrooms or showers. They'd also be hauled into court over hiring practices, dress codes, insurance coverage, anything uh, that doesn't give a unique advantage to people who identify as gay or transgender. So the NRA is one example, but it uh, reflects what's happening all across the country as organizations who were established to champion a particular issue have now waded into other issues uh, that divide even their own organizations. A rather interesting uh, pattern that we're seeing all across the fruited plain. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break, but we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Donald Trump and a delegation of congressional Democrats agreed. Now, I could put the period right there and we could all just rejoice. They agreed on something. The question is, what did they agree on? Well, they met on Tuesday and they agreed on big and bold infrastructure plans with an equally big price tag of $2 trillion over the next 10 years. But the discussion of how to pay for it was left to another day. Well, Americans do deserve better roads, stronger bridges, modernized airports, a more robust energy grid. And the Heritage Foundation has outlined ways to produce over $1 trillion in new infrastructure investment without tax increases or deficit spending. Uh, it's fiscally responsible, includes long-lasting regulatory reforms, and uh, allows projects to be uh, completed in a timely manner. Well, here to talk with us about all of that is uh, David Ditch. He is research associate at the Grover M. Herman Center for the federal budget uh, at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Georgine. Well, it was such a rare moment that uh, we heard that the president agreed with the Democrats, or rather the other way around, the Democrats agreed with the president. Sadly, it was on a, a $2 trillion infrastructure program. At this point, the president, as far as I uh, know, hasn't commented on it. We don't know what specifics are in this whole thing. Any insight into what precisely they're talking about? Unfortunately, everyone is short on details, um, whether it be us, whether it be, frankly, I think uh, Schumer and Pelosi, who are um, somewhat grasping at straws. The administration produced a proposal last year Mm -hmm. that would have sought to produce $1 trillion in infrastructure investment by leveraging a smaller amount in federal spending. But what Pelosi and Schumer seem to have in mind 
isn't leveraging federal spending, but it's throwing federal dollars out the window as fast as possible. And President Trump, frankly, hasn't supported anything like that so far. Well, it is rather surprising, and he is mum on it thus far. What we've been told is that originally the Democrats went in, they wanted to start much lower, but the president was eager to push that number up to $2 trillion. So we don't really know. We know that in three weeks, members of Congress are going to meet again with the president. And the goal uh, apparently is to discuss how they're going to pay for this big ticket item. My guess is there'll be a departure at that point. But as I mentioned, the Heritage Foundation has outlined ways uh, to produce um, new infrastructure investment without increasing taxes, and most importantly, um, deficit spending. What does uh, Heritage uh, have to suggest might help to resolve these issues? There is such a tremendous opportunity out there to get better roads, first of all, by by reverting a diversion that takes place from the gas tax. So when you go to the pump, you pay, say, $10 worth of taxes on on that gas mm-hmm. sent to Washington, D.C. They take $2.80 and they put it into various programs like bike paths and urban transit and the uh, quote-unquote transportation alternatives program. So drivers on roads are paying for people who aren't driving on roads. And is it any wonder that a lot of the roads we drive on aren't in the condition we'd like them to have? Well, you're speaking to me in Portland, and this is the sort of the poster child for that very kind of uh, spending. I won't go into how frustrating that is for me as a motorist, but please go ahead. If we could end that diversion, that alone over 10 years could generate over $130 billion worth of improvements to our highways and bridges. Mm, Incredible. Another significant area that somewhat ties in uh, to a different part of infrastructure is energy infrastructure. Um, Whether you're talking about gasoline, whether you're talking about electricity, keeping the lights on, potentially making both of those things more affordable for families from Oregon out to out, uh, here towards Virginia, there are lots of different ways that federal rules can be streamlined to make it easier to produce energy, easier to produce infrastructure, while still making sure that the environment is protected. There are hundreds of billions of dollars worth of gains that we could get through uh, regulatory reform. Now, we're being told by the Democratic leaders who uh, were part of that meeting that uh, the infrastructure uh, plan that they discussed would include expanding broadband Internet access, work on the nation's power grid in addition to road construction. So what you think of traditionally as infrastructure has been broadened to include um, other things. Your thoughts on that? This is one of the most frustrating things uh, as far as understanding what people are talking about. When one person talks about infrastructure and just means roads, bridges, maybe trains, Mm -hmm. other people can add in the airport system, other people can add in the electrical grid, and some people then try to say, oh, well, infrastructure includes education, and at that point, the word loses all meaning. If you were to take 
everything that would reasonably be called federal infrastructure spending, so that includes water system infrastructure, electrical grid, highways, airports, you would get to a little over a trillion dollars in regular spending over 10 years. If you start saying we're going to go up to $2 trillion, you're going to be spending half again more. That's if this includes absolutely everything under the sun. And at that point, you need to seriously be talking about how to pay for it. Yeah, um, I I think they need to start that conversation now. But my understanding is five other Democratic senators, five uh, Democratic House members who joined Schumer and Pelosi are going to meet with the president to talk about how to pay for all of this. And what this is is yet to be clarified either by them or by the uh, by the president. Um, This is a pretty huge price tag. Um, And I guess the question is, is two trillion dollars a reasonable amount of investment uh, in our infrastructure, if we define it as it has traditionally been understood, is that a figure completely out of line with what it's actually going to cost or uh, what we can actually afford? There's two different conversations to have. Would America benefit from having $2 trillion worth of additional infrastructure? Yes. Would America benefit from having all of that go through Washington, D.C.? I would question. say the answer is unequivocally no. When the federal government gets involved, they add all kinds of red tape, which means that bad and the good projects that get funded end up taking a lot longer. They end up costing a lot more. And also, the more you get federal politicians involved, the more they start picking out pet projects that benefit their particular constituency rather than focusing on truly nationally high-priority projects, which means that we're getting less bang for our buck on the good stuff and billions and billions of dollars worth of waste. Well, it seems to me, to some degree, this is an investment made by the public into the re-election campaigns of politicians who are more interested in having their name stamped on the bottom than doing what's in the best interest of the American people that reflects what each respective community actually needs at a cost that can uh, that's affordable um, without all of these add-ons that you made mention of. Yeah, absolutely. Just last year, Congress passed practically unanimously a water infrastructure bill that included $50 million in spending on flood prevention for a tiny river in Westchester County, New York. If you look on a map of where that river is, it's snaking around a bunch of golf courses. Westchester County can afford to pay that $50 million. But meanwhile, it's going to take 1,000 people who contribute $50,000 in value to the economy every year to cover that cost. That's 1,000 people getting up, putting in that nine-to-five grind every single day, and it's being wasted. And there's thousands of examples like that. Mm. Well, I think all of us need to be listening and watching very carefully in three weeks when the president and these Democrats meet for a second time, uh, hopefully to clarify what uh, they mean by infrastructure and how they intend to pay for it, that $2 trillion uh, price tag. Uh, David Ditch, thank you so much for talking with us. Happy to be here, Georgianne. Appreciate it very much. Again, David Ditch is Research Associate at the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast.
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, tomorrow is the 36th annual National Day of Prayer, where people all across the nation will gather for a day of prayer for the United States of America. Now, this isn't intended to be a partisan day in which you pray that the Republicans prevail and the Democrats are doomed, or that the Republicans are sunk into the deepest uh, part of the sea and the Democrats uh, reign supreme. This is a prayer that the will of God would be done Regardless of the labels we put on ourselves, the divisions that already exist, our priorities, what we think should happen, what we're most concerned about. It's a national day of prayer in which we subordinate our own wishes and desires to the one who knows uh, all things, uh, whose plans and purposes will not be um, thwarted. Um, and who is sovereign over the affairs of men. The theme this year is love one another, taken from the words of Jesus in John thirteen thirty four. love one another just as I have loved you. And that may be one of the greatest challenges we face in our country today. Now, you may or may not be talking politics, but there is a, a divisiveness. There is an environment in which people are easily offended and gleefully so um, that we are called in this uh, this hour uh, to prevail in by loving one another. Well, on Thursday evening, Dr. Ronnie Floyd is going to lead the national observance, which will be held at 7.30 p.m. in the National Sanctuary Hall of the U.S. Capitol. The national observance will bring together a multi-ethnic, cross-denominational coalition of participants, including some members of Congress, as well as hundreds of faith leaders. Uh, Reverend Samuel Rodriguez, president of the National Hispanic uh, Christian Leadership Conference, Reverend Anthony Thompson, uh, whose wife was murdered in the 2015 shooting at Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Julio Aurelio, a, a church planter and missionary to Mexico, going to help lead the prayer event. Pastor Andrew Brunson, who was released last year after spending two years in a Turkish jail, will also participate. Well, the National Day of Prayer was created in 1952 by a joint resolution of Congress. It was signed into law by then-President Harry Truman. In 1988, the law was unanimously amended by both the House and the Senate. They actually agreed on something and signed into law by President Ronald Reagan on Thursday, May the 5th in 1988, designating the first Thursday of May as a day of national prayer. Every president since 1952 has signed a National Day of Prayer proclamation, and I'm certain there this year will be no uh, Uh, No exception. This year, there's also at the U.S. Capitol a Bible reading marathon. It's brought hundreds of believers to the front of the Capitol building to publicly read aloud the entire Word of God in multiple languages and without commentary for over 90 continuous hours. Matt Staver, who's the founder and chairman of Liberty Council, participated in that closing or will participate in that closing ceremony of the Bible reading marathon uh, tomorrow. Says uh, staff members uh, regarding um, all of this, um, our nation is in crisis and unifying Christians to pray for America is the most important thing we can do right now. It is a privilege we have to pray and we should not take that lightly. Uh, The Bible says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And of course, our righteousness is not based on our conduct. It's based on the righteousness of Christ that has been bestowed upon us because of his grace and mercy. So the prayer of a righteous person, this is someone who acknowledges their need of a savior and humbles themselves before a holy God, not a perfect person who is above all others. Uh, Anyway, the Bible says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, and we can make a powerful difference in history when we humble ourselves, come together and seek God's mercy and guidance. 
Well, tomorrow is the National Day of Prayer, and I hope you'll take advantage of opportunities to pray to pray rather corporately with people from all around uh, our communities in Oregon and Washington. And while I apologize, I don't have details of opportunities in the state of Washington. I would encourage you encourage you to Google. Um, information about prayer events in the state of Washington for the National Day of Prayer. I want to mention a few of them that you might consider uh, being a part of. The first uh, National Day of Prayer open house is going to be in West Lynn from 6 a.m. to 5 p.m. And that simply means that the uh, the house is going to be open, if you will, um, and people have an opportunity to come there and pray. Uh, This is an open house style event with the opportunity to pray through this year's theme, love one another, drop by and pray any time that's convenient during uh, the between the hours of 6 a.m. and 5 p.m. And I'm look, this is the National Day of Prayer open house at um, 3153 Brandywine Drive in West Lynn. Also in Newburgh, there's an opportunity uh, for early prayer uh, in the sanctuary. Uh, at 1800 Hoskins Street, 6.15 a.m. to 7 a.m. They're going to be meeting in the sanctuary bright and early and start the National Day of Prayer with a worship uh, song and prayer time with fellow believers from various local churches. They're going to follow that with a National Day of Prayer uh, theme, Love One Another. That's going to be the prayer focus with uh, local, state, um, and uh, federal and other uh, leaders and and issues that will be uh, brought up. Now, I apologize because the uh, legend that I'm looking at does not give the um, location. It's just simply giving me the address. So you might have to to look that up. But this is the Newburgh Early Prayer, 615 a.m. to 7 a.m. at 1800 North Hoskins in Newburgh. Also, there's a National Day of Prayer breakfast. My guess is you would have to have registered by now, but that's in uh, Redmond. Let's see. I'm going to try to keep this uh, local. There's uh, events going on in Bend. In Halesboro, there are prayer stations. Helvetia Community Church is inviting uh, people to come seek God's love and peace as they pray and meditate through eight um, prayer stations with song and scripts and uh, illustrations. Um, Leave the noise of the city behind to the quiet country. And this is at uh, Helvetia Community Church on Northwest Helvetia Road in Hillsboro, 6.30 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. Uh, also in Oregon City, uh, there's an opportunity to pray at the church in Oregon City, the original city, uh, to begin the National Day of Prayer, 7 a.m. to 8.30 a.m. Uh, that's at 615 Fifth Street in Oregon City. Let's see, that's Marion County. They're meeting in Prineville. There are going to be opportunities around the flagpole right here in Portland. Um, America, the, I should say Greater Portland Baptist Church is meeting around the flagpole at 8.30 a.m. to 9 a.m. on uh, Thursday. They're located at 17800 Southeast Main Street, and they're just going to, they're inviting you to join them in prayer. Uh, each year, they're privileged to gather with uh, neighbors and community members as they pray for the nation. Godliness exalts the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people, a quote from Proverbs, and you're invited to join them. That's in Portland on Southeast Main Street. Uh, this is a gathering at uh, Greater Portland Baptist Church. Uh, also in Beaverton, there's an opportunity. Beaverton Moms in Prayer is inviting women of all ages to join uh, for a potluck brunch and opportunity to pray for the nation, state, community, schools, and so on. They're going to um, break up in uh, to smaller groups. You, uh, it looks like you may have had to RSVP for that, so I won't give you any further uh, details. Garibaldi, there's a gathering. Um, there are gatherings. Um, let's see and. 
uh, Womack, Oregon. There's gatherings in Klatskany and Aloha. There's an opportunity for prayer on the National Day of Prayer. Moms and grandmas gathering to pray for children in Washington County. And that gathering is uh, going to be in Aloha on Southwest Alexander, uh, 18125 Southwest Alexander. They're getting together from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m., the National Day of Prayer gathering of moms and grandmoms uh, praying. There are gatherings in uh, Baker County. There are opportunities also in Beaverton at Beaverton Foursquare Church. Uh, their doors are going to be open from 11 11.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m., a time of prayer. They're located on Southwest Walker Road in Beaverton. It's an open house prayer for our nation in a quiet space. Um, Cresswell, they're gathering for prayer. There are opportunities in Madras for prayer. In Medford, there will be believers coming together in prayer. Um, also in Bend, in Carleton, Oregon, in Coos Bay, they're praying in Eagle Point, in Eugene. They're praying in Hillsboro. And this uh, prayer walk, um, they're going to be praying together in groups of two, three on a half-mile prayer walk near downtown Hillsboro, the courthouse area, to pray for the city and its people. Maps are going to be provided um, if you don't want to walk, you can also just pray in the uh, church building, and that is uh, in Hillsboro on Northeast Lincoln, 177 Northeast Lincoln Street. And the Hillsboro Prayer Walk is going to be between noon and 1 o'clock uh, p.m. tomorrow. In Lake Oswego, there's the uh, Lake Oswego celebration. They're meeting behind Lake Oswego City Hall from noon to 1 o'clock, and uh, they're going to be praying around the uh, flagpole. Let's see, there's uh, in Lakeview, there are opportunities in McMinnville. There are uh, prayer gatherings in Newport. Um, I'm just uh, thumbing through here. But what you can do if you didn't hear a location near you and you're not aware of an opportunity in the church that you attend, uh, is just Google. Uh, You can either go to the Oregon Faith Report. Um, They have a list of them there, 70 Oregon prayer events. So go to the Oregon or look up the Oregon Faith Report, and they list all of the locations that they are aware of. You can also go to the National Day of Prayer website, and they list uh, locations according to state and locality as well. If you don't have an opportunity to gather with others, I would encourage you to take some time specifically to kneel in prayer on behalf of our nation, as this is uh, tomorrow is the National Day of Prayer. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we will be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, they tell us the outlook from the National Weather Service for the month of May through July projects that all of western United States is going to see above normal temperatures when averaged over the three-month period. So if you look outside, you see blue sky and clouds. That's pretty much just light clouds. That's pretty much what we can expect. Um, uh, below normal rainfall pattern for the, the same period for northwestern Oregon and western Washington. Much of the country is likely to see above normal rainfall, as indicated. Uh, uh, we're seeing sort of a shift in who gets more rain and who gets less. And apparently, at least for these next few months, we're going to get less. The May outlook um, shows temperatures and rainfall may be closer to normal than a warmer and drier June and July. Uh, May temperatures... Uh, are going to be um, rather cool over eastern Oregon, normal temperatures over much of the state, slightly above average temperatures over the west side of Oregon. If true, our summer season is going to be hotter and hotter starting in June, building through August. So if you don't have a sprinkler system, get that drip system, get your sprinklers out, make sure they work and where you need to place them because it's going to be hot and 
hotter, according to some meteorologists. There is some hope that the summer of 2019 is going to be cooler than one year ago, however. Um, They say the weak-to-building El Nino pattern that's taking hold historically leads to no more than 20 90-degree days in the Portland metro area. Last summer set the Portland record for heat with 31 days reaching 90 degrees or hotter. And that's when Oregonians start to whine, weep, and moan because we're used to cooler temperatures. I, on the other hand, descendant from Africa, am happy for those hot temperatures, and I will have utter sympathy for you. Uh, If you will consent to have sympathy for me as I live through these cold days that make up the Pacific Northwest, I love. Well, so that's what we can expect over the short term. And I'm looking forward to spending some days out in the warm temperatures. And I hope you will as well. Well, tomorrow on the program, uh, as we've mentioned, it's the National Day of Prayer. And we're going to focus much of our attention on that. We're also going to talk with Phyllis McNeil. Uh, She is the founder of an organization called Straight Talk. She had something of a rough background herself. As a young young girl, she had no one in her household uh, that was a role model or set an example or boundaries or protected her. She was essentially on her own, um, and that spelled disaster for her early life. She spent a lot of time running away from home, uh, being caught running away from home, Uh, Doing what one might expect, an unsupervised young person who has no direction uh, might do. But she had an encounter with an individual who took um, interest in her, and that changed everything. As the founder of Straight Talk, she dedicates her work to two people. And these were social workers in uh, the state system. She was in, I believe, California at the time, who took her under their wing and gave her the sense that her life Um, had meaning that she had a future and a hope. And now this woman of faith is ministering to others, particularly within the foster care system, but troubled young people in general. So we're going to talk with Phyllis McNeil, whose name and organization was brought to my attention from uh, by a KPDQ listener, for which I am grateful. We're also going to talk with Rebecca Friedlander. She's the author of Finding Beautiful, Discovering Authentic Beauty Around the World. Now, authentic beauty, there's a lot of counterfeit stuff, and we're being fed, this is what's beautiful and this is what's not. If you don't fit into that category, and of course most of us don't, so we need to buy stuff to help us get closer to it, uh, then we're just we're just out. Now, we're in a season in which we're trying to, we see that there are some who are trying to broaden what is acceptable and, and beautiful, and sometimes we... We do that imperfectly, but I'm at least grateful uh, to know that those of us who fell outside of what was accepted and beautiful in the past, or at least uh, now further in than the fringes. So we're going to talk with Rebecca Friedlander, not just about physical beauty, but about the beauty that surrounds us that can often go unnoticed. She'll join us on Thursday's program. And then on Friday, we're going to... uh, Spend our time focusing on the lighter side of the news. And in fact, I'm planning on pre-recording the program for your listening pleasure later in the evening because we have on Friday our uh, girls' night out. And we're looking forward to spending some time with Amy Barnes as she uh, gives us all an opportunity to just laugh, to look at one another and see, yeah, you know, there's a there's a family resemblance. Um, We are women. We share many of the same challenges Uh, and joys and heartaches as well. And as we laugh together, we're going to have an opportunity after her presentation to spend some time um, over dessert, coffee, tea, fellowship. We'll take some pictures. It's going to be a fun time, but that's coming up this Friday night. If you have yet to purchase your tickets, James, do we still have uh, 
Tickets available for Amy Barnes, so go to kpdq.com. I was at an event this weekend, and two women came up and said, is it too late? No, it's not too late. So if you would like to join us for the Amy Barnes um, night uh, night uh, of comedy, check it out at kpdq.com. James informs me that there should be some tickets at the door. So if you're one of those last-minute people or you're driving down the street and you decide, ah, I'm going, you pick somebody up and here you come. Uh, we want to welcome you as well. That's coming up this Friday night at Tigard Christian Church. want to thank James Blend for producing and Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.